Welcome to Rants About Humanity, a podcast where we interview guest experts with passionate opinions about important topics that don't get enough attention. Raw, unfiltered, thought-provoking perspectives with no censorship. With your host, Philip Van Houta. Hey, it's Phil. Before you're going to check out my Rants About Humanity episode, I also want to invite you to consider following me and subscribing on my podcast channels and my Rumble video player channel down below. You can find it in the description. With increasing censorship and limitations of freedom of YouTube, I don't know how long I will be able to have my thought-provoking conversations on YouTube. So if you want to support me in my mission of freedom of speech, open debate, be sure to also check me out and follow me on those platforms and enjoy this week's episode. Welcome everyone to the Rants About Humanity podcast. Today I have Professor Bob DeWitt, Professor of Strategic Leadership at Nairobi Business University author of Strategy and International Perspective, of which the seventh edition, 2020, is being used at universities and business schools in 80 countries, and author of the new book, Society 4.0, Resolving Eight Key Issues to Build a Citizen Society, launched in 2021. Thanks so much for being a guest on the podcast. What I'm really curious about is if we would have rewinded to March 2020, and you saw everything that was happening with Corona, what would have been your first approach and what are some things that you might have done differently than what we did all around mm -hmm. the world? Well, you know, in a way, I expected in March 2020 what was going on. Because I've been doing research for, for a long, long time about the impact of all kinds of technologies on our society. And in uh, 2017, I was giving sort of public speech. And a public speech uh, was, was called On the Eve of a Societal Revolution. So in 2017, I already expected at some point in time, there would be some kind of a crisis, some kind of revolution in which we will end the industrial society and we will start building a new society. And when I give that public speech, everyone said, well, yeah, I, I understand, you know, it makes sense what you're saying, only, you know, I don't see anything. So I was waiting for a couple of years before something started to change. So in March um, in 2020, when there was yeah there was an announcement of an, a virus that was uh, that was a sort of killer virus in which the, the the World Health Organization said you know the mortality of this virus is 3.4. I started immediately. Well, this could be you know it was my hypothesis. This could be the beginning of a societal uh, crisis. So I started um, to calculate myself with a colleague of mine so what the mortality is the virus, and I came not further than 0.23 percent, which is you know, which is a big difference, of course. And um, so I thought, well, this this could be, you know, if there is a difference between what they say and what the reality is, then something is going on. So from that, that moment on, uh, I knew that, yeah, we were starting in uh, a societal uh, crisis, societal revolution. And I started to publish on that. And I went into podcast series and in interviews. And uh, I became a member of the breakout team in the Netherlands and the rainbow team. I was I was also one of the guests in the, in the documentary COVID-19 the system. I knew from the beginning this is not a, a virus. This is not about the virus. You know, the virus is being taken as an excuse to start changing our society in a certain direction. And uh, yeah, so and in my book, uh, so I was halfway my book, and then in the summer of 2020, I thought, well, I have to finish the book now because you know what I'm saying for a long, long time. 
is happening right now. So I went there, I went to Bonaire, uh, wrote the book, finish it. And uh, well, from that moment, I give uh, in my book, uh, yeah, also more or less a sort of guideline with uh, eight uh, different guidelines, uh, how to build a new society. Did you do it on purpose, launching it around the time when Klaus Schwab, who talks about the fourth industrial revolution, and your book is called Society 4.0? Well, yeah, yeah, more or less. I, I, I knew what was going on because increasingly a number of topics are getting are becoming you know, larger than what a country can, can solve. You know, if you're talking about world health care or we're talking about pollution or the plastic soup or you know, all these kind of things. You cannot solve that in in Belgium or the Netherlands. You know there must be some kind of international level in which you can solve. So and so the, there was an, an increasing number of international organizations like NGOs, non governmental organizations, that were trying to attack all kind of public issues uh, such as health and 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 the climate. And and all of these, you know, the the number has increased from four hundred hundred years ago. There were only four hundred. Now there are forty thousand. You know. So I, I knew that in the global sphere, something was, was happening. And, you know, usually when organizations have too much money and too much power, you know, something, something goes wrong, you know, then some people have wrong intentions. So Klaus Schwab was, yeah, was one of those people I knew was, uh, that was intending to change the world in, in a certain direction, yeah. Yeah. Well, what I see a lot of happening, and, and feel free to tell me otherwise, what I see often happen is that certain big players, they want a certain thing to happen, but they can't pronounce it directly. So they have to milk the territory through NGOs to social engineer public opinion to then say, oh, it seems that the public demands this. Well, we might as well create a solution then, which they wanted in the first place. But, you know, that way they prepare the public opinion, they social new certain topics to then actually get what they wanted in the first place. Do you see it differently? or? I think that uh, democracy itself has, is, is in danger for, for a long time. You know, it started in the 50s of the, of the last century, in which the, the impact of organizations with their commercial and private interests were, yeah, were manipulating the parliament, you know, the it was called lobbying, you know. So there were more lobbyists in around the, the parliament than, than than citizens. And increasingly, the information of politicians came from from outside parties like lobbyists. So increasingly, the the topics they were they were focusing on and all the solution they were su- suggesting, yeah, were actually carried by uh, by these lobbyists. And that started already in the fifties with the tobacco lobby. You remember. And then, yeah, step by step, there were more and more of those organizations that gave the politicians the information to make decisions. Now, that has been changing and increasing, and therefore, the democracy is, is vulnerable. You know, the democracy is vulnerable. You know, if you have large interests and, 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 and are very rich and powerful to, to get things done, then, yeah, then you can influence democracy and, and also on the international level. Yeah, I kind of see it as the invisible hand, not the invisible hand of uh, Smith. Yeah, not, Adam not, Smith. not the market. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> not yeah. the market, but like outside. And I see more and more power being accumulated to a couple of key players that in the future, you want to shop online? Amazon. You want to book something? Airbnb. You want to do, do, do go do a construction with a, a technology? Okay, smart city through like Elon Musk. You could just have like one big giant who determines everything and they become so big that they just make sure that every small to middle company just can't sustain anymore. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's a good right that if, if there comes new companies that they take the opportunities. I think that the digitization gave all kinds of new possibilities, including online shopping. 
And, and there were companies like Amazon who took the advantage. They see what was going on. And they started an online shop and that exploded, you know, that, that was uh, that was increasing and growing very fastly. And, you know, we have never thought about the consequences that for, for the economy or for smaller companies. So that was a sort of, yeah, a new, a new development in which smaller companies were the victim. And as, uh, but it's also, you know, our choice, because if we choose to, to buy our book, uh, my book, for example, not in a local bookshop, but at Amazon, then you're also part of uh, what's happening. Well, we have a culture of convenience, and sometimes that culture of convenience comes at the cost of living a meaningful or valuable life. So we seem to worship convenience and comfort right now, which amazes me because often a meaningful and fulfilling life, it's not the most comfortable one, but it seems that that becomes increasingly more attractive to worship that comfort and convenience. Yeah, yeah, and also because we don't see the consequences of that, you know? It's also for me, you know, I also started buying online. I didn't know the, the consequences when everyone is shopping online. You know? and, and, but now we do, you know, and now we are saying, I see that very often, you know, and also say that to people, if you want to buy my book, do it in, my, in your local bookshop because there's a local community and these, you know, these, these companies are also part of the community and help them, you know, because if they disappear, if the whole, you know, the societal infrastructure in your uh, regional environment is, is, is disappearing. Well, that, that's uh, yeah, it's not, not good for your, for your environment, also not, not good for you. And that's always, you know, when you go to a new society, it has happened before. That's also why I call it Society 4.0. You know, it's the it's fourth time we go to a new kind, different kind of society. And in the beginning of a new society, we don't know the rules of the game. You know, we don't know what are the challenges. We don't know what the opportunities are. We don't know what to take care of. We have to learn that over time, what, what it means. Now, and in that period in, in which you go from one society to another society, there are always organizations and individuals who want to take advantage of that, of that opportunity. And there are also parties who want to, to, to take, yeah, also take uh, opportunity, but then in a negative way. You know, they, they go as far as they can. But the means and the players and the money and the power and the influence of those people who can steer it a certain way is, of course, a lot bigger than other players because the middle class partly has been eaten in this crisis. I read like $3 trillion has been moved from the middle class or lower yeah. class to the to big companies. Yeah. Could you explain a bit what the first and the second and the third, like Society 1.0, 2.0 and 3.0 was? Yeah, sure. That's where, where the, the name Society 4.0 comes from. So what I, what I say in my book is that we are changing from an industrial society to a new society. And as you said, you know, it was told that uh, this is the third industrial revolution and the fourth industrial revolution. That means that society is going to be the same. There are only a one tech or a number of technologies that are added to our industrial society. And that's exactly the core of what I'm saying. It is more fundamental than that. Now, the first society, Society 1.0, was, uh, and that has been for three and a half thousand years, is what we call a feudal society. Mm -hmm. Feudal society means that there is a 1% uh, of people that are rich and powerful, uh, and they rule the country, and all the, all the, all the other people are poor and powerless. And that comes because the most important creation of value was to have land. Because if you have land, then you can produce, you know, ag agricultural products. And that was the prime source for creating value, right? economic value. Now, at the end of, of that feudal society, sort of agricultural society, there were also cracks, you know, there were cracks in that societal structure. And uh, the Netherlands and Belgium has been actually very important uh, in, in that worldwide. The United and Provinces. 
Yeah, we had the provinces, <laughs> and and a lot of those provinces and a lot of cities were actually more trading. Yeah? So trading become became more important than having land. There were trading cities, for example, in the Netherlands were Rotterdam, Amsterdam, Enkhuizen, all kind of trading cities. And if the most important creator of value is a trade, then land is not so important anymore. It's more mer- 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 mercantilism, right? Yeah, yeah. And there became a deep, there became a change from the power of landowners to the power of merchants. And and at some point of time in the Netherlands and uh, and also in Belgium, the economic value created by trade over land and over the sea uh, was larger than having land. And then and then they said, you know, in the Netherlands we had um, uh, a, a plague of there's a plaquet from Verlatingen. So we said to the king uh, Philip II of you made a good you know, choice. You made yeah. guys made the good choice. Yeah, we said you know <laughs> thank you very much. We're going to do it ourselves. And then we started the republic. Yeah, and in it started with with a sort of a certificate uh, saying to uh, Philip we're going to do it ourselves. And from that moment on, it was the beginning of a republic. Now, bef- be- uh, between that, play- that 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 statement a document to uh, King Philip II, and the start of a republic took eight years. So there were eight years of uncertainty, eight years of uh, yeah of, of people who didn't understand what was going on, people who want to to change the society, people were against it, you know, because the landowners didn't understand it, they didn't want that, you know, they were fighting until the end to not to not let, let it happen. So there were eight years uh, in a sort of vacuum between societies. So from there, from then on, moment, we started a republic, and that was mercantilism eh, or the trade as the most important creator value. That is society 2.0, uh, and that lasted actually until uh, 1764 with the invention of the first machine, Spin and Jenny, in uh, in England. That was a by steam and and engine powered yeah, machine to make clothing, and uh, that was the first machine. And then increasingly, a number of uh, activities powered by machines, and that was the beginning of the what we call the industrial revolution. The industrial revolution meant that our church society was going to change, in which not trade was becoming the most important creator value. But mass production by machines and factories became the most important uh, creator of value. And that was the industrial age. So that started in 1764. And also between the mercantilism uh, and the industrial revolution was also five years of uncertainty. All kinds of people want to make advantage or disadvantage. People don't, didn't see it. People that were afraid. People that, that were against it. You know, the, the same what we see currently is that if you live between societies, you have always people that are afraid, people don't want to change, people are against it, people want to make advantage or even take disadvantage. That's always between societies. And now we are in the beginning of Society 4.0, in which not industrial uh, output is the most important and industrial production is the most important, creation of value, but there are new uh, activities that create more value. And so we have to again uh, develop a new society because the first society was a yeah a feudal society for for a few people the second was a civil society and the industrial society was a democratic democracy right a party democracy that for the first time in history had a sort of democratic feedback system yeah and now we are out of that system and we have to yeah uh, env- envision a different society I almost see that we got back to society 1.0, where we have now neo-feudalism, but it's like the big corporations. Well, actually, it's good that you um, a good observation because actually, I think that yeah, the moment where we are struggling between 
the feudal society and the republic, or the more civil society, that's actually the kind of struggle that we have currently. You know, these are the two possibilities, the two scenarios for a future society. In my book, I describe two possible future societies. Uh, one is the elite reset. You know, that's that's basically what you're saying. Yeah. So if yeah, that's one of the possibilities, like Hunger Games society, yeah. Yeah, uh, that, that's one society. And the other society is uh, a citizen society in which we as a citizens, uh, global citizens, take back, you know, the, the country, take back the initiative, build a, a direct democracy and go back to, to local environments and make sure that you get a sort of autonomous local environment, which you do everything that is needed. All the economic activities are needed and do the things that you, that you become happy about. Also, also, and I love this second one <laughs> much more. I think if we're going to do a resket, we could do like a great rescue of great ideas and then incorporate technology. I have a quote that the danger is not for humans to be uh, for robots to become like humans. The danger is for humans to become like robots. So I think it's a matter of integrating technology because sometimes I look at this in a neo-Marxist way. Like you could take a look at he who has the means of production, they extract labor to subjugate uh, the the workers. But now we live almost in a new Marxist society where they they extract perception, they extract information, and they manipulate it to then suppress and play with the perception of people, like how they view the world, they track and trace people. So it's more information, perceptual data and tracking that that is where the big power lies and the behavioral change, whether it be in our votes or how we act or how we relate that data and information has become much more powerful than real production and real factories or the real money yeah well it, it's 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 one of the dangers or the characteristics you, you can say from all kinds of technologies you know, digital technologies to get power uh, and the example is of course in in china when they have a social credit score uh, a sort of citizen score in which everything that you do as a citizen is being measured and in your score so how you are driving in, uh, you know, in, in your, how you vote, how you pay, what you say, you know, what you're not saying, what, what, what your neighbors are saying. Everything is, is becoming part of, of a citizen score or a social credit score. And this is, this, but this, is, this is what frustrates me because I see this, I have the feeling that you also see the bigger picture. I see it almost like the yellow brick road to tyranny. Because we keep increasingly giving our power data away, we are acquiescing, and the, 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 the frog is being boiled. And we say, like, no, it won't go this far, and then it goes a little far, and then, you know, it's keep on being pushing the goalpost. It won't go this far. Or people say, yeah, but we already give our data here, so why not this? So they keep on pushing towards this kind of surveillance society, towards this kind of social credit system. I find it not completely strange, but that not many people see the bigger picture of what society this behavior and measures and way of acting leads to. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah. So, so the, the nightmare scenario is what it, for, for me at least, is what it is in, in China, because there, you know, the political party, the, 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 the Communist Party, has all the information. And, and you as a citizen, you have to deserve your citizenship. You know, you have to behave like they want you. Otherwise, eh, you, you're not worthy of, of being a citizen of, of China. And so, so that's that's a scenario. But so that's the horror scenario, eh? what, what, what you're saying. But it's one of the scenarios. Let's not forget, you know, we have a short memory. If we take a couple of thousand years and we look at the history of mankind, there has always been a sort of struggle 
which means some people want to have control and become the boss of, uh, of the whole and, and citizens who say, we don't want that, you know, that has always been the case. You know, it's not even not so very long ago that there was a, a struggle of, of people who want to have control over the world top down. And that was also in the feudal society, you know, there was also, there was a 1% who had uh, the control over, over the population. And so the struggle has been a couple of times. The good news is, you know, as citizens, you also eh, you have the possibilities more than than we had before. We have the possibilities to say, well, we don't want that. And we don't want that. We want a different kind of society because the technologies that make it possible for them, eh, like in China, to have control over you are the same technologies in which you can free yourself. Eh, that, that, that's a choice. Well, what scares me here is the narrow bandwidth of acceptable opinion. And that more and more that bandwidth becomes smaller. So if all you see is that narrow bandwidth, how can you see outside of it? More and more people get removed, whether character assassination, deplatformed, etc. So the means for people to see an alternative right now, right, with the big players who influence perception, it becomes a certain prescribed, literally prescribed narrative. That's okay. And if you step outside of it, you almost go to an ideological intellectual ghetto. Yeah, well, you see that there are a small number of people, uh, as from the moment I published my book, or even before, you know, in, in, in March last year, in which I already uh, was an anticipating uh, this, this movement, I was more or less alone, you know, because all the people were afraid of the, of the virus. And, and people said to me, you know, what are you doing? Because uh, this is dangerous, dangerous. I, I knew from the beginning that that was my hypothesis. You know, I think something else is going on. If I compare that a year ago in, in uh, February, the, uh, April, with the number of people that are doubting what's happening right now, then the number of people who are doubting and have an alternative idea is increasing. You know, so, so my observation is increasingly people are questioning what's going on and they're questioning whether the authorities are telling the, the right story. So, and, and yeah, so it, it takes some time, but at the end, uh, the majority of people will know what's going on. People well. have more common sense than we think, because I'm, I'm a bit like you. I also saw this in February, and I was like, what is being presented on the news when I look at the data, and it's not showing up in my reality. So my common sense detector goes off like there's a discrepancy between what they're telling happens and what happens in my reality. But what I also see with some people is that cognitive dissonance is so big that is being repeated so much, they can't step outside of that prescribed narrative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, but that, that's, a, that's a normal uh, human reaction because when I come back to what I said before, in, in between societies, there's a vacuum in which a lot of people are afraid. And, and in this case, there's also a virus. You said, you know, it's a very difficult to kill a virus and then you make people afraid. So, and in, in, in such an environment, uh, people have, have different kinds of reactions. And some people, you know, they 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 don't want to change, and they 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 are they they they're not looking at what's happening because they want stability and they cannot handle change. So they're not looking and listening very well. Then you have people who become very afraid. Then you have people who take advantage, and then you have people who who are more brave and and objective. And that's always between societies. Now, as time goes by, you see that increasingly people see the consequences and what's really going on. That number is increasing and increasingly it's also possible to get the information uh, of what really is going on. So I, I think that, that, that the balance of that is, uh, is going to change. Uh, the, the question is, is, is it on time? Is it timely? Because uh, what you see in China, the, the technologies has the possibility to take full control over people. Uh, that, that's a possibility.
The question is, do we let it happen or not? And and if increasingly people are know what's going on because they're suffering or I mean, because they see the consequence of the vaccination or whatever, then there will be a change of uh, of mentality. That has been before, you know, every, every time in a vacuum between societies, you see the same kind of pattern. But doesn't this become a existential value? Like looking at our values, what determines a human life? What is a meaningful fulfilling life? Because I see the push towards transhumanism. And they sell it as like, we could cure cancer, we could do this, like heal people, you can live longer. They focus on how great it is. But sometimes it's a Faustian deal or a trade for giving up human values, what makes us human, what makes our well, life worthwhile. So isn't this also where we're in a kind of effect of a moral crisis, an existential crisis? Why does crisis hit so much? And how oh. can we rescue those ideas again to make sure, whoa, 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 transhumanism. Let's balance this out with fulfillment, meaning, what, what really makes us feel fulfilled. Yeah, and, and let's not forget, you know, also and, and, and stay optimistic. You know, in the industrial society, the good thing about the industrial society was that it was a, a way of economic production in, in which a large number of people within society could get enough income to have get a good living. You know, it, economically, and the industrial society has been very successful also for people in, in factories, you know, that has, has never happened before. The disadvantage is that because of the mass production, people became more robots. Yeah, so they start to work in factories and, and, and they each have to do one small piece. And at the end, there was a typewriter that, that you can sell. So people became actually uh, living robots. Now, the technologies that we have today, including machine learning and, uh, and blockchain and robots and 3D printing and all the others, they make it possible that all the things that humans has been doing in a factory can be done by machines. So the good news is, uh, let the routine kind of activities over to the technologies and humans can become humans again. You know? So humans don't have to be robots anymore. And that's the good news. So if we do it in such a way that the economic production, the value creation is done by things, then humans become humans. And then you can, yeah, you can free yourself. Uh, you Will that, like, uh, that is kind of the curse that God gave to Adam, let's say, that he had to you know, toil the earth, you know, and provide a work because one of the things that is counterproductive is some people who are without a job or something worthwhile, they don't value time anymore. They become depressed and et cetera, and they don't get fulfillment. So yes, you're totally right. But if people can't fill up that time, I mean, I, don't, I think it was Pascal. Most of the people are between, you know, are not able to sit still without anxiety in a room or something, you know, they got to be busy. But then when they have nothing to do, they fill them up with activities to stay busy. So yeah, we got to find some way, way to make that time fulfilling them because if it becomes like a sea of time without any value and new events, that can make a lot of people depressed, even though they think now that that's what they want. Yeah, but 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 you know, the, the, the way that people divide their time and spend their time is going to change. Mm. Because the whole idea of industrial revolution is that you work for 40, 40 hours a week and you say you wake up in the morning and you go to work and do, uh, you know, work in a factory. And then you come home, eat, uh, watch television, and then go to, to sleep. And in the summer, you go on vacation with your car and your caravan, you know, as if that's that's the purpose of life. I mean, yeah, so that's a sort of you know, robot kind of definition of the, of the meaning of life. Now, in the future, it's not that we do not have work anymore. You know, there will still be work, 
but not 40 hours and, and not for in a factory. So, and, and you see it already in the new generations. You know, if you look at the younger people, I have a daughter from uh, 22. She is uh, living in Switzerland at the moment. And you see already these, she, she has a different kind of attitude. You know, it's a little bit of work, a little bit of uh, spending time with your friends, a little bit of skiing, a little bit of uh, family, uh, a little bit of other things, you know. So, so you have a sort of, yeah, a, a, a more variety of, of things in which that, that she does in, in, in her life, in which work is, is part of it. And work will still be part of our life, but in a different way than we have now. Yeah, so we had now big factories that are producing all kinds of things. Then you have to work and, and in, in shop you can buy the things that are being produced. But a lot of technologies also make it possible to have decentral economies and, and regional economies, decentral production. Yeah, let me take an ex- give, give you an example. You know, we have uh, learned that energy is very important, and we make big factories to make energy. You know, so that you know, they put coal or oil in a in a big factory and they make electricity. Then there comes a cable, which is mass production of electricity. Then there's a cable to your house, and then you pay for that electricity. That that's that's a, an example of a mass production of electricity, in which you are only a consumer. But now we have the possibility to produce energy ourselves. There are all, all kinds of technologies to, from, from sun and from wind and from, from water and from all kinds of other things to, to produce energy yourself. So if you're in a sunny environment and you have a solar panel, you can produce energy yourself, which means that consumers become producers. And there are a lot of things that you can produce decentrally. There are robots making strawberries, uh, tomatoes, cucumbers. They're always they're even already robots making cars, houses. So you can also use the technology to make a decentral society in which within the region, you can become more or less autonomous and everything that you need, you can do yourself. Now, if you have a community and everyone is taking one part, you know, one of them is taking doing the energy, somebody is doing the strawberries, another is making your clothing and, and others are, you know, then you together in your region, you can do everything that you need. That's also work. It's only decentrally, and then you you exchange it with each other. So if if you if you do shopping for your grandmother, and then you're paid for that, and somebody else is making tomatoes, so you pay that local currency for for buying uh, tomatoes. That's a sort of trade, a local trade economy, which is a different economic model. Yeah. So and all these technologies make it possible to organize a more or less autonomous decentral regional economy in which you go back to the things that are really important for people to become happy. You know, this kind of reset I find interesting. This is kind of re-eval- the great re-evaluation. Maybe that's a better term to use because yeah. what you mentioned is that typical Dutch Protestant Max Weber work ethic to completely associate yourself with work, you know, and deserve your afterlife. But I'm wondering, like, how can you negotiate with this? Because I look at these conformity factories that are still education, mostly. Sit down, shut up, sit still, don't think, yeah, do yeah, as yeah. you're told, etc. which is so outdated. I see the yeah. overall happiness. I see the satisfaction relationship. I see the number of antidepressants, of burnouts. It's skyrocketing. It's just something is not working, despite yeah. the fact we have more options yeah. and we yeah. get integrated better. How do we reevaluate and go into discussion with these aspects that we have the means to change, but as we are doing it right now, it's clearly not working. We should could yeah. do it much better. Well, don't forget that you know, in an industrial society, it's not only about industrial production, but the whole society is organized like that, including including what you're saying, education. 
Uh, I remember when I brought my my uh, my daughter to school. Uh, first was uh, discipline, and then listening. You know, and then the, the the level of her intelligence was measured, and then the direction. The whole educational system was meant to get people to work and to listen. You know, to to listen to uh, to what they say, and it was not to to develop herself. Your education started to elevate people. That was the beginning. You know, we have to uh, to elevate ourselves by education. You know, that that was the beginning. But in the industrial age, it's it yeah, it became a sort of machine, yeah, became a sort of factory to make workers, you know, that 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 was education. So all the elements of our society have to to change. So at the end of the industrial society, everything was industrialized, including education. Now we are now in between societies, we have to rebuild every part of society again including healthcare, including education, including work, including ethical uh, questions, including making decisions, including democracy. Every element of our society has to be re- uh, redefined. How do we do this? Because I see a big tendency of globalists, centralized players to say we need global solutions for the, yeah, uh, yeah. with my evil John. But we saw what happened just before Corona, the Brexit, anti-European feelings that they feel like more and more Europe is making decisions that are going against the nations, going against the individual citizens' desires. Now Boris Johnson in the Brexit, he's just following global institutions. So just changing the European Union for a more global institution. So you have kind of this apathy of citizens, like what can we still do against this mastodon, this leviathan that is making the decisions? Like I feel powerless. I feel like I can't have a vote anymore in that democratic process, let alone in politics. Well, you, you have a choice because, of course, there's a trend. And, and if again, if you look at history, there's always, if you're in a sort of vacuum between societies, there are always people who want to make advantage or disadvantage of that uncertainty and, and fear of people and, and take control and leadership uh, and everything. You know, that always happens. That has to do with the fact that, yeah, some humans, humans are not perfect and some humans are even less perfect than unperfect. You know, so, so, so people take that advantage, but we have the choice, you know, we have the choice to, to fight, you know, the, the, the powerful. We have the choice to become negative or aggressive towards these, uh, these parties, but we also have the choice to say, okay, you know, you know what? I will do it myself. Good luck and, and goodbye. And we are going back to what we find important and we build a new society and we build a new economy from, from the bottom up. Uh, are you thinking of parallel societies then and then yeah. focusing on the individual? Because I increasingly feel that politics is just change of players, same game and corporate interests are bigger. So I don't have a lot of faith in democracy, let alone politics to try to change things. Don't forget, when we, at, the end, at the end of the feudal society, that was also the beginning of the mercantilism, the beginning of a trade society. There were a number of trade cities, you know, that were actually sort of parallel societies yeah, in which they were organizing things in a different way. And that trade, uh, that trade cities actually become the new trade society. And it always starts in that, in that period, it starts all kinds of new initiatives, new societal is- initiatives. Now it's called parallel society. But these are new initiatives trying to figure out what is a better way to, to organize our society with all the technologies on all the changes at the global scale. And these are experiments of making a better better society. And that, that's always the beginning of, uh, of how it will be organized later on. 
and they won't be ostracized by the big systems to have made it like almost impossible, just as now you can still take a PCR test. But if you don't want to take this Xavine, you're like ostracized and <clears throat> banned and from the community. Yeah, but also again, you know that that's a trend that always happens because in the beginning of the of the of the trade society, you know, the last ones who saw what was happening and who agreed to what was happening were the landowners. Yeah, they they said to to the mercantilists, you know, to the traders, you really think that that an, an, a bunch of 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 salt dealers and and fishermen and you know and and and, and other kind of people can rule a country? You, you cannot do that. So. Until the end, they were, you know, they were resisting the change, and still, you know, citizens uh, started to build a new society. That's now exactly the same. You know, if we decide to build a better society, a citizen society with autonomous uh, regions uh, with our own economic production, of course, the, the current powerful will not understand it. Of course, they will resist. You know, they will not cooperate. That's for, that's for sure. But that is part of our society. That's part of the, the period that, that we live in. You know, you just have to deal with it. You are an expert in leadership. I see currently a lot of leadership wrecks. Do you know what defines a good leader? Or as you said before, there are some people who saw what was going on and were brave. What are the characteristics of these outcasts, misfits, misfits, free thinkers, people who are ahead of their time? Have you studied characteristics of these people? Well, it's related to what we call the S-curve. Yeah, so leadership is related to the context where, the, where you're in. And if you're in the beginning of a new society, then you have a sort of pioneering leaders, you know, people that in that uncertainty with, uh, with a lot of unknowns, you know, what the best society is, then you have a sort of leadership, which is more of a kind of visionary leadership. Yeah, they can envision a better world. And by envisioning the better world and then telling that to other people, they they stimulate them, enthusiasm them, and they follow them in making a better world. Now, when then you come to a new phase in which you, when you have found that that uh, societal form, and then you have to grow up. You know, have you you develop yourself, and that's a new kind of leadership. Uh, that's not that's not a kind of visionary leadership, but this is one that says, you know, we have to invest, we have to grow, and we are uh, that's a sort of optimistic kind of leaders. And then at the end of such a society. Yeah, we come in, yeah, we come in a new kind of leaders that need efficiency, you know, and then you get a sort of over the top. So over the S curve, you have different kinds of leaders. And also at the end of a society, you need have you need to have leaders uh, who do wrong things. You know, we have to 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 crunch the, the society, you know, it has to be broken. So you need leaders who do stu- stupid things so you can break the old system. A crucial question I have, but it's not a black or white answer, but how much did some key players in advance create this or try to manipulate this crisis in advance? Because they talk about conspiracy theories, but you also have coincidence theories. So you had Event 201, you had the Greek Reset already planned in Davos, you had what Bill Gates was doing for a long while, you have ties with uh, Davos of some key players in Western states, Imperial College. You see a lot of connections, what they did in the past with, uh, with the H1H1 flu. How much is this is organic? How much is this is predecided beforehand? And how much is this just being opportunistic? Well, I, I look more at the system level, and and from a system level, that's what I try to do in my book. Is that it always happens like that? You know, you get you get a society, you get to the end of society, you have a sort of vacuum, you go to a new society, and then you get at, at the end of that society, you come to a new society. That's a systemic part, you know. 
From a systemic point of view, we have left the industrial society and we have to build a new society. Now, in, and, and I think that, not, and then people have different ideas what, what the best new society is going to be. And there's also, you know, it has to happen before. Some people want to have a more top-down kind of uh, society and other people want to have more a bottom-up civil society. These are the structures and the, the factors that always happens in, 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 in vacuum times like now. So, of course, there has been people who are expecting a change like me. Uh, and of course, some of them want to have a more top-down society. Of course, there were people who thought, well, this is an opportunity to get world power. That has happened before, you know? People do that. Uh, and if that's planned in a plan or, or whatever, it's always like that. Some people just believe that if you want to solve world problems, you need to have a world, uh, a world government. You cannot, you can agree or not. Yeah, but but from their perspective, that's the be the best way to do that. So you don't need no conspiracy theory at all. You just have to to learn uh, the history, and then you know. That's one thing that I saw, and it was the same thing as you. And I'm also curious, like why you had the reflex when I saw what's going on in Lombardy in February. What did I do? I look at what's the average age, what's the air quality there, what's the difference. That's, that's intuitively research wise what I did, and then I saw also the statistic. You came down then already a year ago zero point. 3%. Now, Dr. Ioannidis talks about 0.15%. So yeah. one thing that we see is, to put it mildly, this is a very disproportionate reaction to actually how dangerous it is. We yeah. can agree on that, right? So why this completely disproportionate response? Plus, I don't know if you read the book of Bjorn Lomborg, where he did an analysis on all the money that you could spend in education, in healthcare, in climate change, in terms of effectiveness. These are all kind of dollars, Examination campaigns that we could spend on obesity, could spend on finding your potential, could spend on tackling depression. So we have to make a choice. Why this choice then? And why in such a disproportionate manner? Okay. Well, COVID is not a healthcare crisis. COVID is a societal crisis. Okay. So this is not about the about about healthcare. It's not about it's not about this this crisis. You know this this corona has been taken by a number of people who took the opportunity to take this crisis and get more power. You know, it it's not, it's not a healthcare crisis. It's a societal crisis. And and don't think about all the the, the health issues that are going on because still on the hill and and it's not a health crisis. You know. It's, so don't look at the crisis like that. I also think it's a crisis of authority because we ascribe authority to a doctor, to a professor, to a virologist, but then we do the research and at least we see other perspectives. But I find it's also very threatening for your university, your profession, your expertise. Some people are not allowed to speak out. They're ostracized. They're removed. I had a guy on my podcast, Sam Brocken. He's a lecturer. He's a health professor for a long yeah. time. And he was just removed and fired from his university just from speaking out. Now, long term, this is also though dangerous for your position because you want uh, liberty to speak, to do the critical thinking, and then your students look up to you. If you can't even speak your opinion or think critically, that's also a very big authority crisis. Well, you know, the, in, in the public sphere with politicians, but also uh, civil servants, over the years, they have been prepared or indoctrinated of what's going on. You know, they and, and some of them want more of a top-down society and they were prepared to do that. 
especially democracy is vulnerable, you know. So they put the politicians in positions to make decisions that were good for, for that 1%. And of course, they were also telling universities and other, uh, and other institutions to follow the reasoning of, of, those, uh, of those individuals and those parties. Yeah, democracy is vulnerable, uh, universities are vulnerable. And, but personally, I, I, did, I, I've, I, have no, no, yeah, I have no feedback on that. It's only that I've been kicked off from LinkedIn because I wrote things that were true, and that's uh, that, that's forbidden uh, these days to 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 write uh, the truth. But that university is okay for me. But at some universities, they are also under uh, under attack. That's true. Yeah. Can some of these platforms become too big to fail, or they're pushing their limits? We talk about YouTube, Facebook censoring, like all these companies. Is there a kind of limit to how much they can grow, or? Well, you know, again, this has happened before. Let me give you an example. In the beginning of the industrial society, it became clear that the most important resource was going to be oil. Yeah, so that was for the first time in history when oil became very important. Now, a lot of people didn't know that, but there was also an, an entrepreneur who saw that oil was getting very, very important. So he invested, he took some financiers and, and he invested in all the, in, in, in the United States, in all the oil fields and the oil transportation and also the refinery in oil in the United States. That was uh, Standard Oil. And at some point in time, Standard Oil had 90% of the oil industry in the United States. So the whole United States was dependent on one company, Standard Oil, which, which was actually was powering you know, the whole industrial society. So at that, at that, well, that's not good. You know, there's one organization mm -hmm. where 90% of all the oil, you know, we don't want that. So first there was the, the misuse of that position. Then there came reaction from society. We don't want that. At that moment, on, there was a, a court case in which uh, Standard Oil was split up in seven oil companies. They called the Seven Sisters, maybe you remember. So mm -hmm. they were split up in seven uh, different oil uh, companies to get uh, competition. There was also the beginning of the antitrust law. So there was no law for that. Uh, and from that moment was the beginning of the antitrust law. And in the antitrust law was that you have to have at least three competitors in, in order to have you know, a good market, a functioning market. So, so first you had a company, uh, an entrepreneur who see what, what's possible. And after that, they see the consequences. And after the consequences, and then societal uh, players say, we have to correct that. We have to correct it by splitting up uh, Standard Oil. We have to split that. Uh, we have to end that by uh, antitrust law. So first you do that, and then you come to reaction. And it currently is exactly the same. You now from the beginning, we did not see how important what 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 the value of big data is. Yeah? Of and we don't see what the value and the power is of social platforms. So some of those entrepreneurs take that opportunity. Yeah, they, they dive into that hole. They they make use of that power. They become very rich. Then again, like like previous time, we understand what the disadvantages are, what 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 we don't want. Then there comes a reaction, and then we'll be limiting of the of what what digital companies can do. We there comes a limitation from society in what social platforms can do. We get new laws. And then we come to the next society. It always goes like that. I hope so, because I saw a curve of how much billionaires it takes to have half of the planet's wealth. And I don't know, yeah. it's maybe 20. It's a classroom. You can fit. Yeah. So isn't there some kind of limit to the amount of wealth a private company or a private individual could have? And isn't there a kind of limit, a certain inalienable rights that a person has that just the private company can't infringe on, let alone maybe like 
freedom of speech. I'm, I'm wondering about, shouldn't there be some kind of limit? Because these companies, I mean, Tinder, Facebook, YouTube, they're Im- impacting so many aspects of our life. Even the democratic process. It's not about Trump. They removed the president of the United States just before the election, just before the election. So what is your perspective about that? You think organically it would evolve that way? Or do you have some idea yeah. like this is the limit or this is not tenable anymore? Well, at, at, some, at some point of time, it will be clear to everyone that things have to change. Yeah, it, 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 we live in a sort of what we call chaos, you know, which, which is scientific world for uh, ever complexity. So we are in a, in a chaos with uh, different kind of stories. We come in a society we don't know yet. We don't know what's important uh, yet. Uh, so first, uh, first we 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 jump into it, and then later on comes the, comes the rules. That has always been the case, and it will now also. You see that uh, already. Uh, for example, here in the Netherlands, we had a, a message today in the newspaper that Uber is not paying taxes, so we have to change uh, the tax rules. Yeah. So first they make use of of the current rules. Then you see it doesn't work, and then we make new rules, and then we're blaming the companies to uh, to to take advantage of that. It's the same for Amazon, you know. There's, there are no laws for, for Amazon to, to pay taxes because they have 40, 40, 40 billion uh, turnover, I guess, uh, something like that. But that's the frustrating thing that I see. I see the richest of the rich in the votes. I don't know what the average wealth has to be to become a member. And those people are saying capitalism doesn't work. Those people who gain the massive yeah. amount of wealth. I see people you have to social distance, I wear a mask, etc. And then I see the gathering in the G7 and I see those people are acting differently. This creates yeah. outrage in me. This is like this elite society where one rule for them, for the peasants, and one rule, another rule for us. Yeah, but you know, uh, don't blame them. Because they make use of the possibilities, blame ourselves for allowing them. I, I put my energy in building a better society. I don't take my energy to to uh, to fight the uh, the elite. You know, it's our responsibility to to do it better, to to give an, uh, a vision of how, how a better society could look like with all the technologies, with all the possibilities, and let's build a better society. And and let's. If we if we take all the energy there is to build a better society, that's much more hopeful, and and there's a lot more possibility that that we will create a, a better society. Then take the energy to to blame others, you know. Well, uh, that's is that is that is the thing to the people who gather in Amsterdam. I mean, th- this is a really a message I, I would love to give to people who are protesting all around the world. Some of these people must have like, what the hell? We're like 10,000 people. We're not the majority. We can't change things. Well, on the other hand, Bill Gates or the big corporation, like, hey, you can listen to those 10,000 people protesting in Amsterdam, or you can just follow us and gain billions of dollars or we will just finance you. Well, that voice, that influence is much bigger than 10,000 people fighting for a different future. So I'm wondering, like, where do these people put the energy? And can they provide a parallel society that all those people who get sponsored by other players they can still have their own unique thing without the intervention and without being swallowed by that bigger hole. Yeah, you can do it yourself. And you know, at some point of time, there will be enough people. You know, so then the majority of people want to build on a better society. And if you have, if that increasing number of people become a majority, then it then the world and then it will change. And don't forget, as an example, that always happened also also happened in in France. You know, you had uh, Louis, uh, I think, Catorze, and, you know, he was a kind of lunatic. You know, he did all kinds of strange things. He was rich and powerful, and he didn't, he, he didn't know where, where, where to end, you know. And, and people accepted that. And they, were, you know, they were worried, they were complaining and all, but they're not acting. 
And then at some point of time, there was something, you know, we call it the butterfly effect, you know, in, in, the, in the chaos theory, we call it butterfly effect, which is a small event can have large consequences. And, and then in France, it was that... Uh, unexpected consequences, because you had egalité, fraternité, and liberté, and then that, yeah. that, that, that evolved into the tyranny and like the beheadings, the, the reign of terror. Yeah. The exact opposite of what actually it should be about. Yeah, but what happened then is that, you know, Louis fired the Minister of Finance, who was very popular among the, the public. And that, that was the butterfly. Then the public said, and now it's enough. And then they stormed the Bastille. You know, that, that's what happened. And so you have that, that kind of vacuum. And if the, the rulers or the, the, the people that have power, if they overstretch their, their power, if they go one step too far, then you get a majority of people who stand up and say, well, enough is enough. And now we go to the Bastille and we, and we, and we change that. And that kind of moment can, can happen here too. The danger that I found in the lockdown is that it infringes on a lot of basic ways to have protest, freedom of the body, freedom of assembly, freedom of speech. So they can either have something behind the door that they could have a climate lockdown, another lockdown, and that organic way of people connecting, assembling, using their voice, it's diminished. So that's a dangerous thing that I see right now, which can prohibit people in the revolution gathering in cafes and spreading the revolution that mm -hmm. way. Of course, yeah, this. You know, it's 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 called social distancing for a good reason. You know, they don't want the people to to come together. You know, that's the whole idea. But how is this possible that all these measures are being made without a solid scientific basis? You know, what boggles my mind, they spent billions of dollars in examinations, campaigns, in all these things. But what if they would spend billions of dollars into figuring out the effectiveness of masks, figuring out the effectiveness of social distancing, figuring out the consequences of lockdown? That is what you normally should do. You take a measure, might be the wrong one, you test the consequence, you have a pragmatic approach, and then say like, okay, cost benefit, shall we continue this or not? This seems to be completely skipped the past like year and two months. Yeah, but again, you know, this is not a healthcare crisis. This is a societal crisis. And, and, and the things that you're saying is as if this is a healthcare crisis. It's not a healthcare crisis. This is not about facts. This is not about scientific evidence, what works and not. Because it has nothing to do with healthcare. Now, this is a societal crisis. We go from one society to the other. There are some parties who take the advantage uh, and there must be something that made the change. And in this case, it appeared to be uh, a, a virus that was the, 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 the butterfly in this case, you know. So the butterfly was, was, was a virus. But it is not a healthcare crisis. It's a societal crisis. So focus on the societal factors. And, and of course, you know, all, everything that they said about, about, you know, the measurements for, for, for the virus, that is more to get control over people. That's the whole idea. It's not a healthcare crisis. What would you have people like focus on if they want to build like a parallel society? Just start with yourself, eat healthy, become self-sustainable, make sure that when you spend your money, it's with like-minded people. How do you can let it grow organically on an individual and community level? And what kind yeah. of time span are you looking at from your previous society models that you investigated? Well, so, well, so far between societies has always somewhere between five and eight years. So I, th I expect that this will take another four years before we come to a new society. So I don't think that the in the autumn that, that everything is over. That doesn't work like that. So be prepared for that. And just start, you know. What, what, what I did, I published my book, Society 4.0. 
And a lot of people were they were enthusiastic about about the idea of building a new society. And and, and they contacted me and said, you know, we are done with the Hague yeah, in the Netherlands. We are yeah. done with the Hague for a long, long time. And we think we we can we will follow yeah, your your vision of how a society could look like. And they just started in that region. And and they they told others what was going on there also in the net. And, and now there are all kinds of organizations that are enthusiastic about building a better society, including investors, including entrepreneurs, including people in healthcare, including people in schools. Uh, I have been invited by a couple of schools in the Netherlands because they are redesigning education, you know, on that. So all kinds of people take the initiative and, and step by step, more and more people know what's going on. So just get started and find people who also want to, to build a new society 4.0 and then, and, and then make the old world redundant. You know, Don't fight them, just make a better world and make the old world redundant. That, that's the best way, best way to do it. And be prepared that this will take for another three, four years. You probably study history a lot, and I want to ask you a thought-provoking question. Does democracy actually work? At the moment, it doesn't work, but let's not forget that we we worked without a democracy for a couple of thousands of years, and we have only a democracy for 100 years, okay? Just to put it in, 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 in perspective. So we are used, because we live in this time, that democracy is the way to organize our, 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 our country. But most of the history, there was no democracy. You know, there's a relative new invention. And that is also a certain kinds of democracy that we have. And that is what has to change. In, in the industrial society, were two strategic factors, as we call it. Uh, one strategic factor was capital. And the other strategic factor was labor. Yeah, so we, we designed a sort of democracy, which was made to balance labor and capital. Yeah, so on the left side, we had labor, you know, labor party. And on the right side, we have the capital party, or we call it Tories or Republicans or, you know, favorite day in the Netherlands or whatever. But that was because the main strategic factor was how do you get a balance between labor and capital? So that was a party democracy that we made, you know, and then you go uh, voting. And then sometime we had uh, central left and then central right and central left, you know, that was balancing left and right, labor and capital. Now, Labor is in the future no factor anymore, and that's what you left is capital. That is not that is not a good that is not a good foundation for a, for a democracy. So we have to reinvent democracy. We have to make a new kind of model. Now the, the new model is actually direct democracy, yeah, so that you as a people can vote on every topic and you can vote on individual people. So not on parties anymore. Uh, that's possible also with a blockchain. For example, a Cardano blockchain has the possibility to have a safe democratic uh, election, you know, on, on the individual basis. So we have to reinvent the democracy into a direct democracy. Uh, it can also be done on the, on the regional scale. And actually, a number of examples in the world when something like that uh, also works. One of the examples is a very old country, Switzerland, you know, in which you have cantons. And in cantons, there is really a citizen's uh, democracy because every citizen can vote on the topic. They can vote on, on, on their representative. And if, if the politicians make a uh, decision and you don't agree, you can make a referendum and correct them. So that, that is already an example of an old, very well-functioning democracy, which we, uh, which we can take as a sort of inspiration of building a direct, a direct democracy. So we have to go from an industrial uh, democracy 
which based on parties, on left and right, we have to go to a society 4.0 democracy, which is more direct. Now, in, in between, you have to we go from one system to another system. Shouldn't these bureaucrats also not be held accountable in a way? Like when you look at the bankers, what they did in Iceland, or when you look at people in public functions. It's funny because I had a guest, Brecht Arnard, on, and he said the only time when you hear that the minister takes responsibility is when he quits his function. <laughs> he takes responsibility. Shouldn't people take responsibility for decisions that they make? Like right now in the crisis, this is impacting so many lives. Like why can't these people, maybe in the future, who knows, can't they be held accountable for their actions and decisions? Because they will, we, we didn't know. We were misinformed. It was his fault. So there's this diffusion of responsibility that they don't get to suffer from certain choices that really impact a lot of lives at the moment. Well, yeah, again, of course, you know, a lot of people made the wrong decisions and decisions that were not good. So you're right. But, you know, you can be very angry uh, on that. I, fi I find that, you know, a sort of uh, yeah, waste of energy yeah, for me. If you look at the history of people, just accept that people are not perfect. You know, if you look at the history of people, there have always been people doing stupid things or, or very uh, rude things. You know, that's a character of, of, of the human race, you know, and there are always people who want to take advantage or they don't see it uh, or they're rude, you know. This has always been the case. And don't forget, you know, the DNA, you know, the DNA of humans don't change in 75 years, you know. So humans at this moment have the same DNA as 75 years ago. So accept it. Accept that the humans are not perfect and that some, per, uh, some humans are, are, are doing good and some, a lot of humans are not doing good. That's a characteristic of, of people. Now, you can blame them individually. You can also accept that we are not perfect and make a better world and take the initiative. You know, if you don't take initiative, you're passive sitting here, become angry at people that are doing the wrong things. Then I would say, you know, then do something. Sometimes we worship technology of innovation and it's better and we get more comfort. I think Hegel also sometimes talked about it. What do you think are some great ideas, great values that we could rescue from the past or put central in our lives again or in that parallel society that we've forgotten in the speed of life at the moment and the running behind technology? Well, I think that uh, the most important things are actually values. And, uh, there are a lot of ethical questions that, 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 that are approaching us. You know, a lot of things that we have to think about. Uh, a lot of technologies are changing life itself, for example. Uh, if you take the example of artificial intelligence uh, as, a, as an example, artificial intelligence means that uh, within five years, there will be an artificial intelligence that is su surpassing human beings. Uh, so they're more intelligent than, than human beings. Now, what are we going to do then? You know, Because that's, that's a very important moment when artificial intelligence is getting more intelligent than human beings in an integral, uh, integral way, not, not only calculating power, or, or but all the different elements had 20 different factors of uh, human intelligence. There will be an artificial intelligence surpassing human beings. We are not prepared for that. And we have to think about it, you know? What are we going to do then? Will we leave all the decisions over to, to the ones who own uh, artificial intelligence? Are we going to upgrade ourselves? Yeah, if you take the example of the, the new company of Elon Musk, yeah, mm -hmm. uh, Neuralink, uh, Neuralink is going to combine artificial intelligence with human brains. Which, mean, which means that, that he is intending to upgrade some humans to an IQ of 200 or 300, mm -hmm. you know? 
that that's technically possible. Do we want that? You know, that's an ethical question. And and we are not discussing this kind of questions. It's also possible with the CRISPR-Cas9 technology, maybe another technology. Uh, in, uh, and last year, two uh, a French and an American professor get a Nobel Prize for that. Uh, CRISPR-Cas9 means that you can cut and paste in human DNA. So you can actually make humans you know, in a laboratory. So you go behind a computer, you take the DNA of humans, then you're going to cut and, and, uh, and paste and all that, and then you can design babies, you know? These are ethical questions, and there are a lot of those ethical questions. What are we going to do about it? No. Well, this is this is a poisoned apple, right? Because I know I know what it leads to because it seems interesting, but you know, there's a great episode of the Twilight Zone, a nice place to visit, I and know. it ends with know. you know the episode, yeah, and it says like, "Whoa, I always get what I want." Like you know, I didn't expect heaven to be like this, and then no. the guy says, "Who he thinks he's the angel?" No, 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 this is hell. Mm -hmm. always getting what you want. And when we have endless opportunities, we can live our lives in multiple galaxies, multiple avatars. That's so much anxiety, so much choice we have to make. Yeah. That is hell. Yeah. But sold as eternal choices in heaven and you can live so many lives. And yeah. once you've eaten that apple, you can't step outside of it anymore. You're in that yeah. bubble. But that's, that characterizes our, our society, you know? We have progressed technology in such a way that we're developing natural enemy for human uh, intelligence ourselves. So, so we make our natural enemy ourselves. And we are not prepared for that. You know, there are no rules how to deal with artificial intelligence. We have no rules what is allowed about artificial intelligence and what not. And, you know, take the example of CRISPR-Cas9 technology. You know, you can cut and paste in human DNA. Now, uh, you can say, well, we don't want that. You know, you can say that. I don't know how it's in your family. In my family, there's a uh, there's a disease, Alzheimer, young Alzheimer mm -hmm. in my family. And in my if my daughter says, you know, I want to make a baby, but if it's possible to take a young Alzheimer out of my DNA, mm -hmm. yeah, then I will say, you know, let's do it. You know, and if it's not allowed here to do that, and it is allowed in in China to do it, then we go to China to cut uh, to cut a uh, young Alzheimer out of the DNA. So these are the kind of ethical questions. You know, we are living not in a technological world. We're living in an ethical world. There are all kinds of ethical questions. These new technologies lead to all kinds of new ethical questions. And we have to discuss that and, 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 and make the decisions that, that make the, the future of our society. Yeah, and also acceptance of our mortality or who we are. I mean, we could endlessly, maybe with tech technology, optimize our partner. Hey, honey, I want you to be blonde today, brown today, look like this, etc. But at the end, you wonder, like, yeah. I'm constantly having to change myself to be liked and appreciated by other people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, actually, you know, we have to, to go back to, to, the, to the whole, well, I would almost say the spiritual part, you know, the, the purpose of our being, you know. Why, why are we on the planet? What makes us happy? You know, what, what's, uh, what's the meaning of life? These kind of questions come, come back because, yeah, uh, if there's no work, if all kinds of ethical questions, there are all kinds of technologies to get power. So what do we want? You know, you're, you're on this planet. So what, what makes you happy? What, what drives you? And, and let's go back to the, to the, to human values and, and the human drivers and, and make a better, better society. Don't forget that all the technology also make it possible. We don't have to work anymore. Everything that we need can, can be organized. We, we can make a better world. People said, yeah, there's no work. Well, you know, not many people like work. Some people like work, you know. But if, if uh, my standard question to students is, you know, uh, what if, if you have won the lottery and you became filthy rich? What, what are you going to do? 
Well, the first thing they say, I stopped working. So, you know, that's the first thing they say. So, so work is not that, that much fun. You know, it is what you have to do to get income. Rethink our future. What drives us? What makes us happy? Uh, and what is making happy is helping other people, is, you know, having a little bit of sports, have some fun, uh, uh, speak to other people, have a an, 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 an contribution to society, have a contribution to others, have friends, have family. That is what we, people make happy. So let's start from the beginning and, and make a better, uh, better, a better world. If people want to know more about what you do and your book and all the great work you're doing, where can they check out more about you? Well, this uh, this book, uh, if I can make some uh, advertisement for my book, sure. A Society 4.0, you can order it everywhere. It's also available on Amazon, of course, uh, but also in your local uh, bookshop. And I've opened a website, uh, society4th.org, so society4th.org, uh, which you can also buy. It. You can also uh, order a signed copy, if you like, and, uh, and then uh, read the book. It's well-received, the book. Fortunately, I'm very happy with that. So if you want to have the book and uh, then come to my website. If you had little Bob in the 20s and 30s and you didn't have to work anymore, would you have chosen another path, you think, or you would have done the exact same thing as you do right now? Yeah, it, it, took, it took me a long time to find out who I was. You know, and When I was young, then uh, I had met multiple uh, interests and multiple talents, and I didn't know if I want to be an artist or a scientist or an entrepreneur and all that. And 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 then yeah, at some time I started to write a book which became successful. This is actually what I want, you know. I I, I don't work for money. I work because this is who I am. Yeah, the, the the highest that you can become is yourself. So my whole life I've been trying to find out what what who I am. You know, what is my contribution to society? And if I can if I can be myself and have a contribution to society, then I'm um, most happy and as can be. And this that, is this, this is what I, mean. I totally agree with. Like, if we could help people make a contribution, find their talents, see how we can all fit together as puzzle pieces, yeah. we can contribute yeah. to the better future. That w- I would love to have people like not have to figure. It takes some time, but in their twenties, thirties, like, what is my gift? What is my message? What is my purpose? And making a contribution. Thanks yeah. for making your contribution on this uh, podcast okay. and bringing a hopeful light for a better future. It was an honor to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and support our mission of freedom of speech. With increasing restrictions on fundamental freedoms, we believe that now, more than ever, is the time for you to be an online coach or consultant and become independent from the system. That's why we created the Client Closer Academy. Learn how to consistently enroll clients and join a community of fellow free thinkers who value personal responsibility, speaking their truth, and making an impact. Find out more at clientcloser.com slash academy. Rant over.